Hello and welcome to the Redefine Instruction webcast series, where we bring a fresh perspective on learning and development with every single episode. Go ahead, grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and enjoy a few moments talking about LND with me. Hi, my name is Sandia Lachenbal and I am your host for this series. Subscribe to our webcast or look out for new episodes on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or log on to redefineinstruction.com for the latest trends on L&D. Have you ever wondered what does an instructional designer do? What does the day-to-day work in instructional design look like? How do I upskill myself to keep up in this field? Do I need a portfolio to get a job? How do I tackle a challenging subject matter expert? If these thoughts have crossed your mind, then Dr. Luke Hobson's What I Wish I Knew Before I Became an Instructional Designer has the answers for you. Dr. Hobson is a program manager at MIT and an online instructor at SNHU. He has dedicated his life to online learning and most of all loves to share his experiences with other instructional designers. In this episode, Dr. Hobson gives me a sneak peek into his book. Listen as he dives into the impetus behind writing this book and shares his perspective on critical questions. You can find a link in the show notes to grab a copy of the book. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Luke Hobson. Hello, Dr. Hobson. Thank you for um, talking to me about your newest hot off the press book, What I Wish I Knew Before Becoming an Instructional Designer. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on, Sandy. I really appreciate it. Yes, excited about I'm, I, I would love to dive into questions, but really, um, your book addresses some really basic questions, right? Anybody who's looking to transition or is new to an instructional design career, I think your book is the one to grab because it answers some really basic questions. When I started doing research and looking into instructional design, those were the type of questions that I was looking at. So my very first question is, what inspired you to write this book? It was indeed those questions. And I was trying to find where to send people to for like a career guidance instructional design book. Couldn't find it. (laughs) I was just like, all right, I guess I'm going to make this because every instructional design book that I did see had some amazing topics when it came to theories and models and all these different uh, best practices, but not so much, hey, you want to actually transition into this field that you may or may not know nothing about? What exactly are the steps for you to take to make this a reality instead of just trying and constantly failing and you know seeing where it goes from there? So really the inspiration was that as I kept on doing everything with podcasts, blog, YouTube courses, and all the other stuff I have going on in the background, finally it was like, can I just make one thing to give to someone to let them to just download it and then to have all these answers and then that way they know what to do and go actually take actionable steps And as you mentioned, the questions actually make up the chapters. So in my head, I made like a little mental tally of just how many times someone asked me a particular question. And those most popular questions became every chapter of the book. And just to say, okay, here's the question. Here's my answer. And then at the end, there's a practice and there's a reflection activity. So go do that. You're going to get one step ahead of the game and then you're off and running. So that was it. 
Right. So you're not just talking about the theory, but you're also give, mm -hmm. giving practical tips on how to implement that, which is which is really cool. So I'm going to yes. start with the two very basic questions. Sure. The pros and cons of being an instructional designer. And then um, well, that let's start there. What yeah. do one expect to find in that section? Like it, really it, basic, absolutely. right? Yeah. <laughs> so. I think that's like one of the most interesting things I've seen as people keep on talking about instructional design is that we're painting it to be this most like absolute incredible ultimate job and you're just going to be so thrilled. And while many people are, let's be real when talking to other people and that it's still a job and I can't find anything out there where people are giving more of a realistic perspective. Everyone's talking about the positives because of course it is what we do. It is our passion. We obviously want other people to come into our field and enjoy the same things that we do, but also, Hey, it's a job. And just like with any other job, there are some cons that are going to be going into that as well too. I know that one of the things that I mentioned about right away when I was writing that chapter was this talking about making a pros and cons list. So for anything that it is that you do when it comes to like making a big purchase or a big decision, I mean, you think about like buying a home or a car or something, you make a pros and cons list. So that's what I advise people to do within this book is like, all right, same thing. You're changing careers. This is going to be a big move for you. Why don't you make a pros and cons list and figure it out? And you can probably list out the pros, but I also wanted to share with folks too, like my cons. And for instance, one of them that I think about is actually the schedule of it all. I know some people say that, oh, it's like a typical nine to five and you're good to go. And I have never experienced that ever. Uh, when a project is ramping up, when it's about to launch, when we're in crunch mode, absolutely not. There is no nine to five schedule. <laughs> so, so talking about that, I'm like, yeah, I have woken up early before just to crank out some work before I actually started the work for the day. I have stayed later on for calls in the evenings with my professors and subject matter experts because we were in different time zones and that's what worked for them. Or perhaps their schedule was just absolutely nutty. So we had to go and adapt to that way. So it's just more of just talking about like, you know, things aren't going to be perfect when it comes to any single job. So before you go and apply for this role, I just want you to know about the, the realistic side of what the job is all about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They should be prepared for it all, right? There are ebbs and flows, as you said, like there are some days where you might have less than nine hours worth of work and then it compensates at other times in the year. So let's go back to the question of what is an ID or what does an ID do? Do you cover the fact that what is instructional design and then the day-to-day -day business of being an instructional design in the book? Yes, exactly. So the, both of those two things are covered because the very first thing that I kept on experiencing in this role is that you were talking to people who you think would know about instructional design, but they don't. So most of the time, whenever I was in a meeting with somebody, the very first thing I had to do was beyond just in introducing myself, was also just to say more about what it is that this field is all about, because everyone has different perceptions of instructional design. And some people have just assumed that my role was magically taking like a whole bunch of slide decks and PowerPoint presentations and then transforming them into incredible learning experience where I'm like, right. no, 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 that's not what it is that I do. I'm like, <laughs> I actually partner with people where- That's and, a very skewed perspective. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I've unfortunately, I've heard it quite a bit or it's just like, that's not exactly what it is that we do. So I actually make a, and I, I showed this in the book, but there's a model 
that I just made up essentially. Like if I took all the different components in my day and broke them down to show you exactly what it is that it looks like within my role, it's kind of interesting because for anything, when it comes to instructional design, you can always say that essentially like you are the person who knows how people learn. You then work and partner with a subject matter expert to extract that knowledge, that content, that information out of their heads. And then you apply what you know from learning sciences into putting this into an overall experience. And then you align everything to show to students the transparency and clarity that links to outcomes and competencies and skills. That's just a basic definition of what instructional design is. But then when I go one step further to break that down, it's like, yeah, I'm an instructional designer, but also throughout my day and at any point in time in the year, I'm a, a relationship manager. I'm a project manager. I'm a learning expert. I'm a researcher. Like I'm doing so many different, I'm wearing so many different hats that it all depends too, as far as for your organization, uh, the time of the year for the quarter, if you're ramping up, like what, what is it that you're actually going to be doing? So just to once again, give a realistic perspective of just like, hey, instructional design, it's kind of huge. You could be doing quite a few things underneath this whole instructional design umbrella for this yes. term. Yes. And, and one of the things that I want to point out is that it's the jazzy part of the job that gets advertised most, right? Which yeah. is the e-learning tools, right? There's so much more than just e-learning tools. The other perspective of what you said was, do we just take slides and turn them into e-learning or this jazzy stuff? That skewed perspective not just comes from the people who are looking to transition, but also people who come to us for business and then how to, you know, how to shift that or educate them that we are much more than making things fancy for lack of a better term, right? Um, so talking about fancy things, let's talk about portfolios because that comes up in discussions very, very often. And I want to know what's your take on portfolios? Is it essential? And what can they expect to find in the book? So yes, to answer your question about portfolios, this was something that I actually went a bit back and forth with because I tried to rule out just my own um, personal thoughts when it comes to portfolios because for some interviews I've gone into, I didn't need a portfolio where they just asked me a couple of different things and I would go on the whiteboard, I would draw it out, I would give diagram me like, but it, it all depends. But then other times I can say from first experience when I was trying to actually go and really land the dream job that I wanted, I prepared everything. I had a portfolio, I had a slide deck, I had anything like it's like whatever you need, I'm just going to wow you so much that you have to give me the job. Right. So from that perspective, when I think about portfolio and let me just start by actually addressing that word, because for some people, when they hear that word portfolio, they are terrified. They're like, what is a portfolio? What am I doing? And as someone who was a graphic design major, I had to have a portfolio at all times because if I'm going to be winning over new clients, I have to show to them my work. It's, it's as simple as that. You're trying to demonstrate what you can actually bring to the table. And if they like it, they can say, all right, we should explore this opportunity and let's hire this kid for some freelance projects and go from there. Mm -hmm. And in this type of same sense, think about it like that, is that you have somebody who wants to be able to see what it is that you have done, but also I want you to be able to explain to more about just the project itself, because I think some people are just taking their portfolio as in like, here's my screenshot of my course. Here you go. Look at it. Isn't it great? And you're like, great. 
but I have no idea about the entire project behind it. What was the purpose? What problem were you trying to solve? What were your responsibilities on here? Then how did you design this entire product at the end of the day? What research did it actually look like? What did you learn from the project at the end of the day? How did you implement this into the next run and the next revision or what, you know, so on and so forth. So it's not just showcasing how awesome and great and amazing that your course is or your program or whatever it is, but also talking more about the behind the scenes and really peeling back that curtain just to show to folks about how you're using your brain to be able to solve these problems and not just from a design perspective, but also from everything else from like that educational perspective too. Right, right. Okay, well, I'm going to flip to the famous interview question. Uh, where do you want to be in five years if you take on this career, right? And you address that in the book. And I think you... Uh, it's a great pathway into what the future holds for you as an instructional designer is like, okay, today I'm stepping into a role of an ID, but what in five years do I see myself continuing to be an instructional designer or what is next, right? Because there's a lot of people who want to grow. So what can they expect to find in that? Where do you want to be in five years? Yeah. And it actually goes back to one of your points too. You talked about how people are so obsessed with tools. And what I find so funny is that the more I'm in this role, the less and less tools I use. So instead, as I'm starting off as an instructional designer, then yeah, I'm certainly, I'm involved in the tools. I'm getting my hands dirty with design. I'm in every single part of everything with all the design process. And then years later, now I'm leading people and I'm managing projects. So the instructional design job, when I first started, it was that I was called an instructional designer entry level. That's what I am. And then now fast forward years later, well, now I'm a senior instructional designer and program manager. So it's just the roles and the responsibilities kept on increasing. So as you're thinking about five years from now, I really only know a handful of instructional designers who started off as instructional design and then they stayed on that same path and they're still just entry level, not entry level now, obviously they have years more experience, but they're still instructional designers. Usually an opportunity will come up within leadership or if we're taking on something that is closely related to instructional design, but it's a different opportunity. So becoming like an assistant director of the online learning division or for a pedagogical stance or for a teaching and learning lab or for you know something else along those lines, or even if you're going to go into the world of um, management for like learning management systems. Or for vendors or partners or for those relationships with like OPMs, which are huge, especially now in 2021, where we don't have the, the manpower alone just to be able to build it. And people are partnering with other different organizations to help them out. So it's like the instructional design role, while fantastic in itself, let's be realistic. Five years from now, you're going to have a different change of interests. You're going to want to be able to do more. You're going to want more excitement in your job. So thinking about that is absolutely crucial. And I don't think people do that at the beginning. So when they're starting to like look into the role, they're like, oh, I'm just going to focus on only instructional design for these scales. And this is all I'm going to do for now. But it's like, but you want to be one step ahead of the game. So where are you three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? And maybe you don't know, which is entirely possible. Like our, our world is changing constantly. I feel like instructional design has like gone through 
I don't know, some crazy evolution within just like a matter of only like a year or two years. <laughs> and now we're like years ahead away from where we were just in 2019. So it's kind of baffling. But I mean, how many people do you know of who stay in their jobs between three to five years and don't look for other opportunities? I think I mean, most people I, do. It's just it, keeping yeah. yourself motivated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that comes with a job which involves technology is learning new skills. And you've addressed that in the book as well. So what can one expect to find? Are you, are you talking about new skills as in program management and leadership, or are you talking about new tools or new trends? W what is your take on that? So yes, <laughs> just say all, all those things, all <laughs> the things you just said, but this chapter in particular actually covers kind of like a different approach to that. So when I'm saying about how you're going to be teaching yourself a new skill, while I do mention some of the skills that you should be looking into, because I, I referenced about how no one really talked about UDL. And then all of a sudden in um, around two thirds, I mean, yeah, I want to see around like 2000. And for me, it's probably like 15 is when I was first introduced to UDL. And then that's when I really started to explore it more and read every single book I could and took advantage of it. And now it's like UDL is just a part of every single job posting you see. It's a, it's a standard, it's a new mainstream way that we have to design courses because it's the right thing to do and it makes a lot of sense. But from what the chapter was talking about, it was this more of how do you actually teach yourself? Because we can design with instruction in mind and we can try to be able to help and educate other people. But when you think about your own education, everyone, especially I'll say in, in academia, calling out folks like myself and, and others, we just make the same exact mistakes over and over again and thinking like, oh, I'm just going to somehow acquire this knowledge. So whether it's another book, another webinar, another uh, going to another uh, training or live session or like, you know, whatever it is, it's like, oh, I'm just going to constantly keep on trying to do the same manner. But then you don't really learn anything. You were there. You were present and in the moments, but then you're going to make the mistakes again and again and again by buying more books and taking more courses and doing more things, but you're not applying anything. So that's what this chapter really does talk about. And within the book for the end of every single chapter, there are practice activities and there are reflection questions. And those are in there for a reason, because I want you to be able to go and take action. As soon as you learn about something, go and apply this knowledge in a situation, reflect upon what you just experienced and how this is going to help you in the future. So it's not just like, this is the book to go and crush and read 200 pages in a day. Like that's, that's not what this was made for. And the uh, analogy that I use is actually with health and fitness, because I, I kind of equate anything when it comes to teaching yourself a new skill. I'm thinking of like, What's something that's really hard for people to do, you know, teaching yourself a new language, playing an instrument. Sure. But for 99% of like Americans, for instance, like health and fitness, they've tackled at some point in time, trying to lose weight and to get healthy and get into shape. And the truth is, is that as everyone has experienced, you burn out, you quit, you get frustrated because you don't see results fast enough. So you think you're doing something wrong. So you pivot and then you get discouraged and you go back to just having this, you know, this mentality of woe is me and then gaining even more weight. And it's just, it's an awful drastic cycle of not really doing so well. Cycle. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's the same thing when it comes to everything, when it like for professional development and teaching yourself a new skill, you get discouraged, you get frustrated, you go and buy another thing. You must uh, blame yourself because you're not acquiring the skills fast enough. So what I was talking about in there, and I, I do 
use health and fitness because I managed to make that a part of my lifestyle years ago and it hasn't gone away. So I was basically, I'm like teaching you saying like, this is what I did. It really worked for me that after a month, I kept on doing one activity. Then I shifted to another. Then I monitored my progress. Then I did another thing. And it finally built up that habit and that routine where now I know personally, I think back to all those mistakes I made along the way where now I'm like, okay, now I know how to teach myself this type of a skill because I've been there, I've done that. And now I can apply it to other areas beyond just health and fitness. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Um, let's talk about the big debate of um, joining an academy or teaching yourself versus going for a degree when you're ah, into instructional design. What's your take on that? Like, what's your opinion about should one go back to a university and get a degree or should one self-teach oneself? Yeah. And I, so somebody asked me yesterday too, uh, we were talking on Facebook about the book and one person reached out to me and they're like, Luke, quick question for you. Should I go back to school to get a degree? Yes or no? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. So that's not a quick question at all. <laughs> thank you for your, right. I was like, thank you for your question. Uh, but this is a huge question that people keep on going back and forth about. And some people get very uh, emotional and, and tied into it. Be they are. It's a very powerful emotion for some because they have gone back to school and they had a great experience. They found their dream job and life is good. Then you have, unfortunately, the flip side of other people who went back to school, wasted time, energy, a ton of money, and just for them to say that this didn't help me out at all. And now I'm back to square one. So you very much have kind of both sides of the fence to things. But what I was telling to him and what I'll say to, to everyone else as well is that it all depends upon the person, their preferences, their background, the market, like there's many different things. So for somebody who has been in uh, teaching, for instance, or for education, that's definitely probably the, the uh, most significant portion, I think, of folks who are transitioning from one field to another. Well, for teachers, you're in a very unique spot because most likely you have a bachelor's or a master's in education in some capacity. So you're already ahead of the game. So does it necessarily make sense to go back and get an entire degree in it? It could be helpful if you're trying to beat out other candidates going into these same jobs and you have a master's in education and a master's in instructional design. Yeah, you're probably going to beat out another candidate. I mean, that's that just makes a lot of sense. But also, if you already have this leg up with education and you can go and just apply what you have learned to other different types of opportunities and you feel comfortable and confident and you're building out your portfolio and you can answer interview questions at length with everything that you've been able to teach yourself, or perhaps, as you mentioned, going into something like an actual uh, reputable academy or for just getting a certificate or something else, if that's what's going to get you that additional edge or to give you a community that you're trying to build around, then that may make more sense. But I can't just give you a blanket answer of just saying like, oh, no, you don't need a degree because right. yes, they certainly do help. But also, I mean, we even need to talk about too what school you're going to. Right. I mean, yeah, it's, it's huge, which I yeah. think like doesn't get talked about enough because people think of it as just like a degree versus not degree. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, no, because there's some schools out there that are fantastic. Like, so I oh, I referred to uh, Bloomsburg University in the book because I know Dr. Carl Kopp. I know his students. I know all the outcomes from that program. And I'm like, yes, that makes sense. But then when someone reaches out to me about some school that I've never heard of before, I'm Googling it and I'm looking at it. I'm like, 
it, it looks That's a sign right there. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. Like I'm like, I'm reading the program description, just like you, right. the marketing is great. <laughs> I, I maybe, you know, but I don't know any of the people who've gone through the program. I don't know of a director. It's just like, so then it's up to you to be able to go and make those connections, talk to alumni, talk to current students, talk to the staff, go and try to read reviews, talk to the people on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter who have attended, you know, it's, you need to do that research. research. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. what it comes down to. Right. Right. So I completely agree with that. Um, Let's talk about the, our better halves on the job, the SMEs, Mm. right? The subject matter experts. Um, You've addressed this topic in the book, how to work with a SME. Um, do you, what can one expect to find in that chapter? Also, do you give techniques on how to handle challenging SMEs? Cause that's, that's a very common theme that I hear from instructional designers. All the time. I know I had to include that in the book as well. Of just like, when it comes to working with SMEs, here is the everything. And I, I, I link to a few other things too, because I have a very, I have like a 40 minute YouTube video on how to work with SMEs that like I link to it because it's an ebook. So you can go and click and you can see that as well. So there's been a lot of SME talk over the years, which does make sense because they are, as you mentioned, there are significant others. There are partners in crime when it comes to all of this. So you're going to have for those folks that you want to be able to establish and create that relationship with them because then working forwards with them, life is going to be great. But sometimes you unfortunately are going to have that person who is, is very stubborn or doesn't like change or that is so against something or, you know, something happens in the project where they're going to um, get upset by it. And now all of a sudden they're up in arms and it's up to you to figure out how to actually handle those different types of situations. So yes, I do mention talking about like de-escalation and trying to be able to like, you know, figure it out from that perspective. Cause we've all, unfortunately, Unfortunately, have tackled that in one way or the other. I also want to be clear in mentioning that too, that for folks listening at home, it's not like that for the majority of relationships. Because I know that like it, it's so the problem becomes so significant when you're working on one project where you're just like completely up in arms and like you're saying like screaming fire, like help me. What do I do? <laughs> but it's like, it's typically not often, hopefully should not go down that road where you need to push the last resort button. And you're saying like, what can I actually do? But for those circumstances, yes, I do talk about that. of just really trying to be able to handle somebody who is just either so negative with the situation or the, the time constraints or whatever it is that has now made this a impossible project. How do you handle something? And sometimes to be honest, sometimes you're going to have some projects that you just are going through the motions and you cannot wait until it ends because you've done everything. You've done every trick. (laughs) You've done every trick in the book. I mean, I've gone through some projects before where I had uh, basically like five backup plans. I had A, B, C, D, E, and I'm just going through the motions, just trying to see what works. And sometimes it just doesn't, and you have to go back and revise and figure it out later on, which is like the absolute worst case scenario. But other times you can learn more about them and their perspectives and try to have an open mind and see why exactly they're so resistant to the change. And they may honestly bring up a great point that you never thought about because unfortunately, as the instructional designer, you are the middle person. <laughs> you're you're like the voice of the organization who works the SME, but also you have to go back to your team or your department and try to actually make this happen according to their standards and their requirements. So it's up to you to be able to figure out how to make both parties work together. And it all goes through you, which is sometimes not that fun, which is one of the cons. 
that I listed on there as well (laughs) in that chapter. I think it's really eye-opening to see from your perspective that, you know, challenging SMEs are not something that you'll encounter just at the beginning of your career, but it is a lifelong issue and experienced people deal with it as well. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, so so I think that's that's just the reality of it, that people know what they're stepping into when they're dealing with SMEs in this career, because that's something you're going to have to live with day in and day out, and people's skills come with it. So. Talking about people skills, the flip side of it is navigating cultures, specifically Mm. work cultures. And there's so much that has happened in the last two years around work cultures and the sensitivities around DE&I, the diversity, equity and inclusion, right? So you've got to be able to navigate the cultures delicately and not just in this job, but in several jobs. How do you tackle that question? So for that, what I've actually found, which has been so interesting when I wrote that piece was talking about, um, based off of the work of Professor uh, Ed Shine from MIT, and he describes about how he began to notice that there are essentially three different types of subcultures found within really any organization. And as I began to look at this, I was like, well, first I was like, what is a subculture? But then also trying to like, think about it from an organizational stance of like, where is the ID in this entire mix of things? And then for a subculture, essentially think about that as how it's like a culture within a culture, but it keeps on going down. It doesn't stop. So yes, you're going to have the organization's culture, but then you have a department's culture, your team's culture, and then like your immediate coworkers culture. And it kind of keeps on going from there. And what I started to notice was that the different types of subcultures do exist within these very particular units of um, academia. So when you think about how for one of the cultures, if we're taking, um, let's say, the executives, the quote unquote executives in the um, entire organization itself, you're talking about the provosts, you're talking about presidents, you're talking about deans they have a different type of subculture compared to those who are going to be other instructional designers compared to those who are going to be seen as engineers or compared to those who are going to actually be talking to the students or for the learners from a corporate perspective. So it's not just about understanding their personalities and their working preferences and everything like that, which is absolutely huge and as you should, but if you can get more of a sense of the direction of where they're coming from before you even have those conversations is very helpful because for some of them, if you're going to be talking about it from, you know, you're, you're going to be approaching a situation where you're going into uh, a dean's office and you're talking about it from the student experience itself, where you're like, you know, you're talking about the learning experience side of things, they care but that's not the top priority because they're probably coming to you thinking about, we need to have this conversation about this new program and we need to talk about the enrollment numbers. You know, we need to talk about how they're not really doing so hot right now. So the finances, like the, the do or die, the financial survival was essentially embedded into them. So as you were coming to them with these different types of unique problems, they might be thinking about it from a completely different stance and you're just simply not meeting in the middle and need to be able to kind of um, talk all about that. So that's what that chapter goes into is that every culture makes their own types of different uh, assumptions when it comes to things. So they have their own sets of beliefs, values, and cores, and they assume one thing. So if you can come in prepared and a little bit more educated about how to tackle that and to think about it from their perspective, which is kind of like 
better boil down everything is it's like, here's every department. Here's all the people that I know of. This is where I think they are coming from, from different types of instances. And I think this can help you. That's how that kind of is all put together. Okay. Yeah. I think it makes more sense. So, you know, when you're trying to, if, if you have the mindset behind the audience that you're talking to, and if you know the mindset that they are coming from, then it's easier to pitch the solution and speak their language. It's sort of like um, knowing their motivations, reading the body language that goes with the conversation, and then pitching the solution. Because if I go all nerdy about why this content is relevant and why it has to be hands-on to a CEO of a company, he is he's not going to care because he is probably more focused on the business value of the solution or the sales that are associated with that learning solution, right? So it makes so much more sense. Um, speak the correct language to the correct audience. That's how I would put that particular yeah. chapter I mean, I've, or question. I've- I've had so many conversations too with different engineers and other people working on learning management systems where it's just like, you might come in and you may say that this tool is incredible and it's awesome. And like, we absolutely need to use this. And then they're saying like, all right, well, tell me more about uh, LTI. Tell me about this integration. Does it actually work? What are the preferences? Does it work for every platform? Like, and start drilling you about like IT questions. And you're like, yeah. oh yeah, that's what they care about. <laughs> they, don't, they don't care about, is it awesome? So it's like, yeah, sure. It's great. We, we can't wait to use it. But if it doesn't function on our platform and we're fielding these calls from students as they're calling into the customer support line and, and submitting tickets to us, well, then it doesn't matter. We, we don't want to use the product if we're going to encounter that issue. So yeah, so that's why I try to describe those different um, pockets because there's different, even though like they don't have the same job titles, they still seem to fall within like the same types of different subcultures. And that's how like, I, I just piece that together from just my own um, personal experience and like my own research, I was just like, you know, it's like interesting. Certain people think the same way, like academic, academic advisors tend to think the same way as someone within the registrar's office, as somebody who is doing like the, um, admissions enrollments, like they kind of have the same mindset, but an ID or an engineer is a different one or a provost or an AVP or a Dean, they have a different mindset. So it's kind of fascinating how we're all in the same organization, Mm-hmm. But, and we all have the same goal. Motivations. Yeah, it's like we all have the same goal to help other students to do well and to, you know, it, it hit our numbers and all those things of that nature. But it's just, it's kind of fascinating when you think about it from a, a subcultural. No, I think it's a great way of thinking about it. Great way of making it objective, an objective way of thinking about it. Um, let's talk about the the case of imposter syndrome. I think ah, that- sure. <laughs> Sure. Um, we all suffer from it. Um, what's your advice on that? So my advice on that, we all suffer from it. I want to want to hit home that point once again. We all do. Even I do. Uh, d- it doesn't matter how long you've been in the field or what it is that you do. I mean, it's just like instructional design has been my world for years. And it doesn't matter. Um, I was doing a, a presentation not too long ago, probably... I say not too long ago. It probably was in the heat of 2020. The world's a blur. I can't remember time anymore at this. I have no idea what day it is. It's fine. Anyway, in the middle of 2020, I was doing a speech for a predominantly uh, online university. They asked me to come in and to talk all about working with SMEs. I said, sure, can't wait. Let's do this presentation. This is going to be awesome. And then a part of what it is that I do just to kind of like warm up the audience is that I want to engage with them typically before I kind of like, you know, dive on into my speech. And I was just curious and asking folks, like, how long have you been instructional designers for? 
And usually I'll hear like one to five years, one to 10 years, like something somewhere around there. I'm like, oh, okay. But there was a core group of them who had 20 years experience, 25 years experience, 30 years experience. And I'm like, if one person has actually been an ID for longer than I've been alive, it's like, okay. Like, why are you here? (laughs) Like, why am I teaching you that you have never encountered before? And then I saw like that imposter syndrome that set in, in a second. I was like, whoops, I should not be here. There should be someone who should be even more advanced in their career. than I am speaking to this group of people, but then, you know, I took a second, took a deep breath, did the thing afterwards, reflected upon it. And then thought, actually, you know what they did probably what is that? I do. I go for second perspectives. Maybe I'm not there to learn everything, but if I can take away one or two gold nuggets from the speech, then that's good enough for me. And I can try and go on to apply that. So I had to, so once again, to your point, we all experience it. doesn't matter who you are, where you're at, it's going to happen. So my trick though, as far as for being able to just obliterate imposter syndrome and try to make this go away as much as humanly as possible is to completely immerse yourself into one single topic and then to become so fluent in it and to become so confident in it, then you can move on to another and another and another. And I found out that that has helped me to build confidence over the years, where if you think of all of instructional design, it's huge. No one is a master of everything. It's impossible. And you think about all the most notable people in our field, they became great in one area. And then eventually they tackled others, but it wasn't until they just kept on hitting that home more. And you can see this from all different examples. We mentioned, um, uh, Dr. Carl Kopp not too long ago. I mean, like his work on gamification is mind blowing, but he's not the UDL expert. He is not, you know, like any other form of, of guru. Like, yes, he's done more things. Don't get me wrong. He's written books on micro learning and everything else, but you can think, and you can see from different instructional designers that they focus on one thing. They get so good at it that they finally are like, okay, now let me move on and learn more again and to keep on building up that confidence. And it's just like a simple mind trick, honestly, which is just just to build up your confidence. But you need those wins. You need those small wins to eventually feel like you are ready to go and tackle something new and you can't just overlook that. And that's what I've honestly used to now say like, sure, I would love to record a podcast and put myself on a recorded thing for all the world to see. Where before I would have said, no, are you kidding? Like, no, I'm not going to talk to people. <laughs> so it, it really does help. Yes, yes, definitely. And that I think goes back to when you said go deep and then diversify to tackle that imposter syndrome. I think that also circles back to your question in the book about what in five years? What are you going to be doing yes. in five years? Because that's yeah. your next level, right? Your next step and your next step um, and your motivation to go on. Let's talk about public speaking. Um, I'm kind of thinking of public speaking from two different perspectives. And I know you tackle this question in the book. So public speaking, because you've got to be confident to speak to the stakeholders who bring the learning request to you. But then in the job itself, there are a lot of ID roles that are out there that have facilitation neatly tucked in there in the form of either train the trainer or actually end user facilitation. What perspective can one expect to find in your book? Yeah, you you absolutely nailed it because I've found too that you might think you're doing one 
different type of item where you're like, oh, I'm, I'm just going to be talking to my team today. But that is a level of public speaking of talking about your accomplishments. And then other times you're going to be talking to the entire organization or you're talking to the student facing side where you're actually talking to learners or students. And that's just the thing is that there isn't so much as you are going to be just constantly behind the scenes which I know that some people are like, oh, great. I guess it's going to be here. I get to do my thing. I get to build this course. I get to work with these awesome people, but I'm still like within this kind of like of a, like of a protection. A mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it's just kind of interesting how, like I, I've known people for many years that like, that's how they do what it's like, that is their thing. And that's, you know, fine. If that's what you want to be able to do. But if you want to going back to your point of five years from now, where do you see yourself? Public speaking is going to be involved. If you're going to be at anything with management or with leadership or even just leading IDs, if that's what you want to do, you still need to talk to the team. You need to address them. You need to address the organization as far as for what your department has done for the accomplishments and where are you going and how are you going to get there? And if you are facing a really different situation, how are you going to be able to solve that problem? So public speaking in my career has been constant. It has changed to your point of like, who am I talking to? It has certainly changed. Where before it was all internal. I was just constantly speaking to my fellow team and having like town hall meetings, you know, where it's like where I am talking in the town hall. And then, I mean, even now, current day, that's totally shifted. Yes, I still speak to my team and whatnot, but now I am actually talking to students. Um, I'm on different things like marketing webinars where I, I am literally the one doing the marketing webinar of yeah. welcoming people into MIT and for going into this program and seeing if this really is right for you. And then if it is, then most likely you're going to hear from me again within the program itself of talking to the learners and the content because something that I wasn't really expecting with this job, but it does happen is that you are a lifelong learner. You keep on picking up new things as you're learning about it. So while I am not the critical thinking, decision-making expert professor or guru by any sense, I was the one who developed the course on that. So because of that, I can talk about it. (laughs) I might not be able to answer every single question, but I can certainly confidently tell you about what it is that critical thinking is all about, how you arrive to a decision, how you use logic, how we're going through and forming of premises and conclusions and all that other fun stuff. So it's just so fascinating, but it's, it's always relevant. It's like public speaking is everywhere. I can't, I mean, at this point in time, I don't know about you, but like, I can't escape it. If I no, said like, yeah, I don't yeah. want to do it anymore, that's impossible. <laughs> it's in my job. <laughs> and I think public speaking comes in different forms, like you said, right? Even this podcasting is is to a degree yes. public speaking, right? You're yes. speaking to, it's only the difference is it's, it's asynchronous versus synchronous speaking, right? So yeah, it comes in various shapes and forms. Which is honestly even crazier because now if I say something just utterly stupid, it's recorded for everyone to hear for forever. (laughs) Unlike if it was a live session and I just make one blunder and it's like, whoops, I didn't mean to say that. People probably will forget. But now they can go back to any point in time listening to podcasts or watching on YouTube and they're like, ha, see it that 55 second marquee to the thing. And I'm like, yeah, well, (laughs) sorry. Yeah, (laughs) it's It's etched in stone for all of history to know. Pretty much. Um, Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the efficacy of a course, right? So from personal experience, I will tell you that instructional designers tend to be perfectionists and their own worst critics. So one of the ways to tackle that is to get a review from someone else. 
what are what are some of the tips and tricks that you've given in the book about judging the efficacy of the course? Absolutely. I mean, you're right. You're, you're absolutely right for that one. So it's basically that is that you can think from how you are designing your course and that you can assume that everything is going well, but experience and life lessons have taught me that you might think something is great, but Hey, guess what? You were not the target audience. So even though as you are reviewing, you're saying it makes sense. You have to also remember too, that you were the one who designed everything. So it's like, of course it makes sense to you because you have the, the inner knowledge. You have those inner secrets that make sense, but to the outside looking in, it's a very different perspective. So for all the courses that I do, I want to be able to collect feedback, weekly feedback, and then be able to assess that and then to go and ask them more in-depth questions about that from learners. So there is always some form of a survey embedded within my programs just to ask more about them. And if it's during the pilot phase, then I'm going really heavy. I, I want you to scrutinize everything. Was it relevant to you? Did the directions make sense? How long did it actually take you? Because I'm projecting it's going to take you five hours. But if you tell me 10, that's very different. And then of course, what, what hit home? What did you actually really enjoy? Because whatever you did enjoy, I'm going to do more of in the future when the program really does launch to the general public. And then you ask some form of modified questions just to once again, make sure that everything is going great and that nothing needs to be updated in the future, which most likely it's going to be. <laughs> so you want to have some direction to be able to say that, especially for any programs that are more of a nuance within like an, an IT field or engineering or anything like using technology because it just changes 24 seven. So right. you constantly need to have that type of updated information, but learners, they aren't trying to hurt your feelings, but they're truthful because they'll tell you, they will actually say that like, this is exactly what I was looking for when I'm going to be taking like, so for my case, when I'm taking a program at MIT, this is the level, this is the depth that I'm looking for, but I know it's going to help me in my career. But if they're taking another program and it doesn't speak to them, maybe they're coming from a different background, or maybe I said something that it just wasn't so engaging. And I, I thought it was going to be engaging to use a case study that talked about a certain field. And they're saying like, no, I hate this. Like, why would you mention this? So you're going to be able to collect all that feedback and then to go and apply it. And then that's how you're going to know. Yes, your teammates will tell you. And yes, anyone who is from your um, institution or organization reviews it too, which is helpful, but that's not the most helpful way to see if it's been designed well. It's to actually do the prototype to really get feedback from the people who are going to be taking it. Right, and that's how you right. know. Makes me yeah. think of the samples that you stand outside the shop and hand out and say, okay, well, do you like this product? Yeah. Should I make more of it? Right. Um, you want that real-time feedback too. Exactly, and that's that, exactly. that's the thing. Yeah. And that's what every that's what every famous entrepreneur does. And that's covers in one of the it's not in the, uh, you know, maybe it's in, even in the book. I don't even know at this point in time what, how much information is inside of there. There is, um, uh, for one of the programs that I talk about within the book, I refer to it about how there is an entire program that talks about the case studies from Apple, Google, Tesla, Twitter. And the thing is that when it comes to trying to launch something for speed to market, they all do the exact same thing. So it's just like, why don't we replicate this and see if it works? And we can do the same thing when it comes to making a prototype, trying to be able to collect feedback and then apply and implement that right away. And then to keep on going through that cycle until eventually you have your final product to say like, okay, I can confidently tell you, this is awesome. You're going to get a ton out of this information. Once you can do that, you know, why not? Why, why shouldn't we replicate the same thing? It's all... There's plenty of things that we can learn about from other different types of fields that we can bring over within to education or for anything within the L&D field that, you know, we can certainly still use in other areas. 
Right, right. I think you have two questions that, that go hand in hand in the book. One is how to judge the efficacy of the course. And then the other flip side of it is what is it that the students are doing when they're taking a course? Mm-hmm. Um, makes me think of XAPI. But uh, what what perspective have you addressed in the book as to how, do, how can we judge the, the actions or learner reactions when they're actually going through the course? Yes, that's interesting. So it's kind of funny where it's like, that I almost didn't put that in there, but I'm like, no, I, I should, because when we ever, whenever we talk about instructional design, everyone thinks about how, oh, you're making something that's online. It must be multiple choice questions and quizzes. Like, or drag and drops. Cool. Or drag and drops. Yeah, it's like, cool. Right. But like, I don't really use those. And I've gone so far as to eliminate multiple choice questions completely from my programs. And I learned something from that because my students freaked out. They were very upset because they were thinking that something was wrong. Because like, it's so embedded into our nature that you're like, where's the multiple choice questions? I know they're in here. And then when they weren't in there, the students just freaked out. And I was like, okay, whoops. Uh, I will put some in there to me, right? To make, sure, make you think that like you're not losing your mind. But the thing is, is that there's far more above and beyond that we can do when it comes to courses. So when I was talking about that of just like, you know, what are students actually doing? I want you to know more about what types of activities there are that you can use to make and design an overall amazing learning experience. Whether you're going to be using something from a scenario-based learning perspective or project-based learning or a problem-based or going through gamification or for simulations or case studies or peer reviews or open response assessments or different types of engaging discussions or whatever. There's so many you can do and you don't need to just think about, as you mentioned, the drag and drops, the fill in the blanks, the blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, like, sure. They have I their time. In- old school. <laughs> yeah. It's like, and the thing is, is that I won't knock them so much because there is the time and the place to be able right. just to try to do that quick hitting short-term memory boosting. Like that does make sense for checking the, uh, you know, the understanding at that point in time. I do get it. But when that's only what it is that you do, I promise you no one's learning that information. And like the example that I, I always think about, which I've gone through, and I'm sure you have as well too, is that there's been so many different types of trainings I've done for uh, the HR department. Yes. They're like, Compliance. here you go. Oh, exactly. Here you yeah. go. Here's this new thing you need to be able to be aware of. And you're like, okay, sure. And you're going through and you're like, like, why? Like, why, why are you making me go last year? (laughs) Yeah. And it's, and it's not even just that, but it's just like, Oh, let let me flip over this card again for the fifth time. Let me select, let's see, A, B, C, D, all the above, Hmm, probably all the above, you know, it's just like, ah, I think there's, there's better ways to assess knowledge than just something so simple. Sometimes it does make sense, but it's, but I have unfortunately taken entire trainings where that was the entire thing. It was this all, and here, here's your final exam of 20 multiple choice questions. It's like, okay, I promise you, this isn't going to stick. Yeah. Like, I, I know for a fact by science that this is not going to stay in my brain, but okay, you know. Yeah. 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 Agreed. Agreed. That brings me to the final question. Um, you know, instructional design as a field is evolving, and the last two years are a testament to that. Where do you think we are headed? What can we expect to find in the future? And I know you've talked about that in the book as well. I have. I I brought up a couple of different points too about where we're going into this. And I had a podcast episode recently that kind of hit home on the same topics because there are different ways that we can approach and think about it. Because when we say future, I know everyone thinks about technology which is a given, you know, everyone's going to be thinking about how, and, and, and that's in there. I talk about VR and XR and AR and like, yes, I'm sure that is going to be in it. But one thing that 
we could do right now today, which is something that's kind of funny because you're like, oh, I'm thinking about the future. It's like, no, you can do this right now. I promise you it can work. And I've done this with the courses that I teach, which is so interesting, is that we've been talking more about that uh, human-centered perspective from everything of just thinking about the learner and what it is that they're going through. And I want to be able to apply this more from a humanistic uh, perspective, just to be able to put in what I am calling designated learner check-ins. And what this essentially means is that at the end of every week or every two weeks, whatever you, you want to do for your preference, there is a section in my courses that actually asks students how they are doing. Tell me more about what you went through. Did you face any problems? Do you have any questions? And from just like a mental health check, well-being perspective, like how are you feeling so far? Are you ready to move forwards? And is that type of just uh, emotional one-to-one -one level of connection that you can submit or whether you want to write it out or for most of my students, they do video check-ins where they're like this on Zoom, record, hey, Dr. Hobson, here's what I went through this week. Everything is going well and good. Awesome. Other times I have had people submit videos or for writing and check-ins where they're like, oh my gosh, this crazy accident just happened. You know, my daughter's in the hospital. I don't know what it is that I'm doing like with my life at the moment. Human Education's element. taking, Human. right. It's like education is going to just take a back seat, especially with the pandemic. I had either students tell me that they lost their jobs because of different things or for other times where they're the opposite. Like they can't, they can't find anyone to fill the back backfill roles. So I'm working 80 hours a week. I don't, I, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. So I don't know what I'm doing. And then when you learn that information as an instructional designer or as a professor, you can then go and have some more clarity to say, you know, why is it that John didn't submit anything for week one? Oh, let me go and see this written check-in he just submitted. Oh, there's a major catastrophe. Got it. Right. And you can be able to pinpoint that as far as for not just thinking about when you think about it from a learning analytics standpoint, then yes, you're trying to use the best information you have as far as for their submission, how much time they actually spent inside of here, and a little bit more about just their um, behavioral patterns. And that's one area that you, obviously we can go down, but just it's not the full picture. Exactly. But it's not the full picture. Data will lie to you when somebody is missing or they turn in really terrible work when normally they're a grade A student. And you're like, why are you submitting me this half finished stuff? Like, it doesn't make sense, which will happen. And then when you can uncover the real reason, then everything opens up and you can say, got it. Now I know how to be able to take the design I already have and to make it better because I'm able to now see this data and hear these stories and these testimonials. And then that's where you put it all together. So I think it's going to be more of that in the future. It's going to be more about really how do we actually make this centered around the learners and not so much, here is the course you need to fit into it. It's like, no, we're going to do the flip of that. I'm going to take the learners. I'm going to fit a course around you and your style and your preferences. And I'm going to try to make that actually work. Yeah, that's yep. what I think we're going. I, I, I love this. So it's not one size fits all, but customizing the course and the learning to the human being who's taking that course. Yep. So I am more than excited about this book. Thank you again for taking the time to speak with me about what I wish I knew before I became an instructional designer. Um, it's jam packed with information. So I'm going to tell my listeners, go get a copy, go get an e-copy. And um, Dr. Hobson, it has been wonderful chatting with you about this book. Thank you again for taking this time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Redefine Instruction webcast series. We welcome feedback. Leave a comment or question on any of our social media pages. 
we look forward to hearing from you. Until then, stay tuned for the next episode.